Hi guys, before we start the show I just want to throw out a couple of ways that you can support us and help to keep the podcast sustainable. Now we're an Audible affiliate so if you fancy an audiobook subscription service hit them up through our link which is audibletrial.com forward slash darkhistories and you get a free month including one free book of your choice. Alternatively you can support us directly, we have a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash darkhistories and over there you can get bonus episodes, early access to the show access to our Discord and access to all my research notes. All those links will be in the show notes or over at the support page at darkhistories.com. And if times are tight and you're a bit hard up, and I think we can all appreciate that, it's no worries, you can support the show by just sharing it around on social media with your family, friends and all those other good people. All right, let's crack on with the show. Cheers. In the 1860s, railway travel was in the process of redefining a nation. Britain was changing as cheap, efficient travel spread out with a web of iron tracks connecting distant towns to the largest cities. The very notion of time and space had changed, and with this change came a growing fear. There was a myriad of ways in which train travel was reported to be dangerous to one's health, and in 1864, a new contender arose to terrify passengers that of murder. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 17. I'm Ben, this is Dark Histories. I hope this episode finds you all well and having a lovely time. Just a couple of quick bits and bobs before we get going. I just want to say thank you to this month's new patron supporters. We've got Graham, Simon, Brad, Julian, James. As always, your support is humbly and really very gratefully received. So, yeah, thank you so much. And a second quick thing, I completely forgot last episode. Congratulations to Kilobit, who solved the number station cipher. He actually was the first to solve it, and he's kind enough to write out how we've done it over on our Discord. So if you're interested in how it's solved, jump on the Discord, check that out. And an honourable mention goes to Gretchen, who also solved it. And I've got to say thanks so much for getting involved. I thought it was a fun little competition, but I did wonder if anyone was actually going to try and solve it. So, so yeah, thanks very much for kind of getting in the spirit of it. Anyway, here we go. This week we have A Topper and a Beaver, The Murder of Thomas Briggs. By 1864, over 10,000 miles of iron trackway had been laid across Britain and the rail network had spread out across green fields and through the centre of hamlets in all corners of the Isle. In London just a year previous, the world's first underground rail had opened and steam trains carved through the tunnels below the capital, bypassing the cluttered horse-drawn traffic in the roads above. This vast network had trampled the standards for time and size Villages that had been days of travel away were now reachable within hours. News that similarly took days to disperse throughout the nation was now able to be reported, printed and distributed the same day. Goods could have a greater, more efficient reach and labour markets had found a new freedom. For the more affluent, rail travel saw long-established class boundaries being dismantled and new wealth growing in unfamiliar locale. Rail travel fueled the Industrial Revolution as it carried tourists, workers, mail and newspapers to strict timetables wherever they needed to be. The landscape changed as towns shrunk and grew or found themselves host to a new rail line that ripped through the heart of their peaceful and at times historical villages indiscriminately. It was a shocking change for many and writer and social critic John Ruskin commented on rail travel as the loathsomest form of devilry now extant, destructive of all wise forms of social habit and natural beauty. The trains themselves were self-contained carriages, lit with a single gaslight and with no joining compartments between, meaning that each carriage was essentially a locked room, speeding across its tracks at 60 miles an hour. This had caused a certain degree of alarm, 
as people questioned the safety of passengers who could not alert a person of authority if something untoward was to happen between stations. This fear wasn't entirely baseless and had been fuelled by a long-running backlash against the social progress that cheap, efficient travel had bought. This backlash manifested, as it so often does, in a campaign of fear, and papers such as Terry and Miller's The Invisible Plague, The Rise of Mental Illness from 1750 to the Present, warned that rail travel could injure the brain with their jarring motions, unhinging the mind. Fears that a passenger could flip at any moment, turning madmen in a locked room full of unsuspecting passengers, was very real for Victorian travellers. Punch, the satirical weekly, jumped on board and illustrated a map of Britain with an asylum and connecting rail networks to show how an escaped mental health patient could quickly make a getaway and wreak his or her particular brand of havoc. This fear of rail travel was widespread and deep, however, it was undeniable, even to the greatest critics, that this form of travel had brought new opportunities. Travel that allowed the lower classes to move their labour into the inner cities also allowed the more affluent to relocate themselves to newly emerging, leafy commuter suburbs. Thomas Briggs was one such commuter, having moved his family from the stuffy, pollution-filled streets of London to the spacious Hackney, now just 20 minutes travel to his place of work in the city, the financial and business district of the British capital. He was entirely typical, and one of thousands who had done the same. As the heat of summer crept over the horizon, His name was to stand out amongst the rest, stirring the undercurrent of fear, threatening to boil over. Thomas Briggs was born in Lancashire in 1795 and had moved to London with his family as a young teenager. He had married a woman named Mary and had six children, four sons and two daughters. The large family was well off and Thomas, now aged 69, still worked hard as a head clerk in the bank of Messrs Roberts & Co of Lombard Street in the City of London. In recent years, he had moved his family to Hackney and now commuted daily to work on the North London Railway Suburban Line, a semi-circular track that connected Hackney to the heart of London. He was five foot nine and described as a stout and stalwart man who dressed in a waistcoat, silken top hat and carried a heavy cane and leather bag. He was the very picture of a middle-class Victorian city worker. On Saturday 9th of July 1864, Thomas Briggs had visited relatives in Peckham for the evening and was returning home around 8.30pm, walking to Old Kent Road where he took a bus to King William Street and stepped into Fenchurch Street, a station that served trains on the same northern railway line he used for work. He bought his first class ticket and chatted with the ticket collector, who he knew well being that he was a regular on the line. At 9.50pm he boarded a train settled down in the corner, placing his bag and cane on the seat next to him and relaxed, now on his final leg for his journey home to Hackney. At 10.01pm, the train pulled into Bow, at Hackney Wick at 10.05 and Hackney at 10.10. It was in fact running slightly late, and the conductor, Benjamin Ames, let out a sigh as he heard a commotion further down the platform coming from two men. Sidney Jones and Harry Vernus were clerks who were boarding the train at Hackney and had the unfortunate experience of opening the door to the same first-class carriage that Thomas Briggs had boarded, just four stops previously. Thomas Briggs, however, was no longer there. Instead, they walked in on an empty carriage, covered in blood. Benjamin Ames sent a telegraph ahead to Chalk Farm Station, where the train was to terminate, and completed the journey ensuring no one else was to stumble into the macabre scene in the carriage. At the same time, Alfred Eakin was driving an empty train along the same track in the opposite direction, headed for Fenchurch Street. He'd passed through Hackney Wick and was about a third of the way to Bow when he noticed a dark shape lying on the bank next to the train tracks. He pulled the train to a stop, jumped onto the gravel and headed back to see what it could be, so that he could remove it from the trackway. Expecting it to be an unfortunate animal that had strayed a little too close to the line, As he stepped closer, he found instead, to his shock, the body of Thomas Briggs. Briggs was in a poor state, with several head wounds, but faintly alive, and Alfred Eakin alerted the help of passers-by further up the bank to help him to carry Briggs to the Mitford Castle pub, an establishment that backed onto the line. 
There, PC Dugan was the first official to the scene in the Mitford Arms. He had spotted the men carrying Briggs's lifeless body from the tracks and immediately headed in the pub to see what was going on. Upon searching the body, he removed a diamond ring, several pounds in cash from his pockets, as well as several letters. The letters were addressed to Roberts & Co. Bank, and so he sent for a member of the bank staff to come and identify the man, which, along with the letters, was promptly confirmed to be that of Briggs. By 2am, his family had been contacted, and Briggs's son arrived in the Mitford Castle. He accompanied his father as he was removed from the pub. The following day, Thomas Briggs passed away from his injuries, consisting almost entirely around his head, leaving him with deep wounds and a fractured skull, attributed to having been struck by a blunt instrument along with gashes by his left ear across his temples that were thought to have occurred as he fell or was thrown from the train. Back in Chalk Farm Station, the bloody carriage sat silently on the tracks, waiting for the murder investigation to begin. In 1864, any form of detailed forensic police work was still a glint on the horizon. Chemistry was not yet used, nor microscopic evidence. Even basic fingerprinting would not be used widely by police until 1891. Detectives, a relatively new concept in themselves, therefore, had to deduce the ins and outs of crime scenes from the evidence they could see plainly before them. Walter Kerasy was the first detective to step aboard the quiet carriage now sitting quietly at Chalk Farm Station, and given the tools available to him, he deduced a considerable amount about the crime. The door handle was bloody. A large quantity of blood appeared to have flowed profusely from the corner seat. There was also a small quantity of blood on the window, two spots, like splashes. From this, along with the fact that Thomas Briggs was not a small man and the attack was quick, over in around three minutes given the position of Briggs between the two stations, the detective deduced that he had been asleep, with his head against the window at the time of the attack, and was therefore unable to mount any sort of defence. He also concluded that from the amount of blood on the door handle, and the fact that Briggs had no blood on his own hands, the killer had thrown Briggs out of the train himself, quashing earlier suspicions that he may have jumped out of the train to avoid a robbery or assault himself. Kerosy also found Briggs's stick, his bag, and a crushed beaver hat damaged in the assault. A gold jump ring, usually attached to a piece of jewellery, most notably a watch chain, was also found, crushed into the floor of the train car. Seeing as how no watch or chain had been found on the body of Briggs, robbery was concluded to have been the motive for the attack. The police took the items to Briggs's family who confirmed that both the stick and the bag had belonged to their father, however, no one recognised the hat. Thomas Briggs wore a silk top hat, much more costly and suiting to a man of his station than the beaver hat the detective had retrieved. The family also confirmed that Briggs was indeed carrying a gold watch on a chain and described it including serial numbers. This initial inspection of the train car had given police two important leads on the case. The first being the missing jewellery, if it was a robbery, then it would be highly likely that the culprit would be looking to sell it on somewhere. And secondly, the mysterious beaver hat, which just so happened to bear the name of the maker in the lining, J.H. Walker of 49 Crawford Street, Marylebone. The next day, the press reported on the murder. It was the sort of story the public could feast upon, and the press were well aware. Sensationalist reporting of gruesome murders were already a staple, and this particular crime had an added twist. It was the first murder to have been carried out on a train in Britain. With rail travel already eyed suspiciously at best and outright feared at worst, the story stoked the public's imagination by pointing out that Thomas Briggs was a first-class passenger and described him as a gentleman, striking a blow to the middle classes and at the same time making a point that the murderer must also have looked just like any ordinary, well-put-together member of the public to have been able to board a first-class carriage without suspicion. Death, they were told, was lurking in every traveller's shadow. Worst of all is the horrid consciousness, not merely that you are uneasy, but that you are making the traveller in the opposite corner uneasy too. You know as the train rolls on, that though he may pretend to be looking out the window, your vis-a-vis -vis is keeping half an eye on your movements, just as you are keeping half an eye on his.
The police were well aware of the perception of the case by the public and looking to resolve the ordeal as quickly as possible, both to allay fears and to avoid criticism in the press, they appointed Inspector Richard Tanner as a lead detective. Inspector Tanner was considered brilliant and at only 31 years old he was an ambitious rising star in the Met Police. He quickly set about business by measuring the distances between stops on the Northern Line and concluded that the attack had taken place between 10.01pm and 10.05pm, taking a maximum of three minutes from start to finish. Witnesses around the station were not forthcoming and it appeared no one had seen any suspicious person leave Hackney Station on the night of the murder, nor any persons covered in blood. The possibility dawned on the police that perhaps the murderer had left the train as it slowed and took off across the tracks in the opposite direction of the station itself to avoid detection, and if that was the case, it was highly unlikely anyone would have caught a glimpse of him. Likewise, the hunt for a murder weapon was unfruitful, and the police eventually decided that it was most likely that Briggs had been attacked with his own stick, which was a weighty, heavy affair. Though the amount of the blood on the instrument caused some debate, with nothing else found, it was the best the investigation had. A reward for information of £200 was issued, quickly rising to £300. £100 was pledged each from the North London Railway, the Government and Briggs's workplace, the Robertson Co Bank. This was a substantial sum in 1864, equivalent to several years' wages for a craftsman. The same appeal also offered a pardon for those that may come forward with connections to the murder, providing they were not the murderer themselves. Tanner ordered 2,000 posters printed, providing details of the case, including a description of the hat and the offer of reward, and then he had them pasted all over London outside of newsstands, rail stations and reprinted in newspapers across the country. After the reports in the press, the public interest soared and thousands of letters were sent to their offices. Most of them were hoaxers claiming to know more than they did or suggestions for the police on how best to handle the investigation. Regardless, all leads had to be followed up on. One letter, however, stood out and held more promise than a lot of the others. It was a letter from Mr John Deeth, a pawnbroker who opened a shop in Cheapside and who claimed to have dealt with a watch chain matching the description released by police. Inspector Kerasy visited Deeth immediately and confirmed that a man speaking good English but with a German or possibly Swiss accent had come into his shop to pawn a chain worth £3.10. shillings. The man, he said, had swapped the chain with one valued at £3.05. shillings. He had also taken a small finger ring with a white stone to make up the difference. He couldn't give any detailed description of the man, however, as he had acted suspiciously, seemingly trying to avoid direct eye contact. The next breakthrough came on the ninth day of the investigation when a cab driver named Jonathan Matthews stepped forward offering information on a man he knew who owned a hat that seemed to match the beaver hat found in the train carriage. Initially, Inspector Tanner was not impressed by Matthews and described him as such. His manner appeared mysterious. There didn't appear any truth in him. The police found it odd that it had taken Matthews so long to come forward and assumed he had eyes on the reward money. Nevertheless, the cab driver certainly had a story and if it was to be believed, he also had a name for the man. Jonathan Matthews had had a somewhat rocky past but he was now settled in London, living with his family and driving a cab. He was acquainted with a young German tailor by the name of Franz Müller, a friend of the family who often came to dinner. There were some questions concerning Matthews and Müller's relationship, specifically that Müller had, it seems, to have been engaged to Matthews' sister-in-law at one time or another, though the relationship had seemed to have broken down. Franz Müller was a 25-year-old German, born in Saxe-Weimar, he had apprenticed as a gunsmith in Germany, though he had turned tailor after he immigrated to England in 1862, where he presumably met Matthew's sister-in-law, and then through association, Matthew's himself. Once, at dinner, Muller had remarked on how he liked Matthew's hat, and the pair struck a deal that Matthew's would source another the same in exchange for Muller making him a waistcoat. The hat was a beaver hat made by the self-same J.H. Walker as the one found aboard the train car. 
Muller had also left an empty jewellery box after Matthew's young daughter had taken a shine to it, and the jewellery box was stamped with the name and address of Deed's pawn shop. Matthew's story was a solid lead on the case, though it did have some inconsistencies. Police questioned Matthews on why it had taken him so long to come forward with the information, however he replied that he had simply been unaware of the story until he had heard gossip concerning the murder floating around his taxi rank. Regardless, he supplied the police with not only Muller's name, but his calling card too. These calling cards were quite a fashion item in the day, and they were furnished with a photograph. Muller's too had a photograph, along with his address where he lodged. Inspector Tanner wasted no time in tracking the address. When he rapped on the door to 16 Park Terrace in Bow, belonging to a Mr and Mrs Blythe, his spirits were quickly dashed. Franz Muller had indeed lodged at the address for the past two years, and police found a hatbox in his room that would have once contained the beaver. Mrs Blythe found it all quite strange, and she told Inspector Tanner that Muller was quiet, well-behaved, inoffensive young man of a human and affectionate disposition. This was not the description Tanner was expecting. Furthermore, Muller was no longer residing with the Blythes. He had left, Tanner was told, three days prior, on the 16th of July, aboard a ship bound for America named the Victoria. Tanner had little time to waste. He requested permission to chase Muller across the Atlantic. If Muller arrived in America, there was every chance he could slip away from justice, and this was not an outcome that Tanner was relishing. The ship Victoria was a sailing ship, and that meant that the police had one advantage over Muller. An arrest warrant was granted, and Tanner left for Liverpool the same night aboard an express train, taking both Deeth and Matthews to gain passage on a much faster steamship named the City of Manchester. Steamships were significantly faster than sailing ships, meaning that the entourage could land in New York before Muller and await his arrival, allowing them to catch him unguarded and place him under arrest. On the morning of the 20th of July, they set sail from Liverpool. The journey would take two and a half weeks, during which time a void of information would appear. The story of Thomas Briggs's murder that had captured the public's imagination knocking even news of the American Civil War off the front page, would be left to stew as news of the transatlantic chase and extradition hearing in America would drip back across the ocean. Whilst the city of Manchester sailed across the Atlantic in pursuit of Muller, the press back home in London found that they had a public hungry for news and very little hard facts to feed them. Instead, they turned to editorialising on the guilt of Muller to continue to stimulate their circulation, with almost all reports skewing negatively against him. Rumours of the ship Victoria were cast out daily with little rhyme or reason, and very little truth. Muller was reported on as an assassin, and reminders that capital punishment awaited him were in almost every paper. In general, the British public had accepted German immigration into England with a relative indifference. However, with the outbreak of Germany's war against the British ally of Denmark in the early months of 1864, a sea change of opinion against German immigrants had found attitudes and prejudices changing, and they were not in favour of Müller. At the same time, a statement was delivered at the inquest from a Mr Lee. Lee was a friend of Thomas Briggs, and had travelled on the same line regularly. He had had some hesitation in coming forward, on account that on the night of the murder he was visiting a young lady who was not his wife. After he officially came forward, this was documented as Lee simply taking a walk. Lee's story was curious. He had seen Briggs on the train just before his murder, and he had said goodnight to him as he walked past his carriage on the platform. But more strangely, is that Lee claimed to have also seen two other men in the carriage, men who were not there when the train arrived, sans Briggs, in Hackney. Police asked Lee to describe the men and neither description matched that of Muller. Still time passed and still the press printed their stories. Subtle changes were happening however and now bolstered by Lee's statement the press began to change their tact. Details of Matthews began to leak out, that he was recently bankrupt and that his cab was unlicensed along with the details of his past legal run-ins. 
Questions began falling upon his own motives for coming forward to police. Was he spinning a yarn hoping to collect the reward money? Or perhaps was he even an accomplice of Muller? The Daily Telegraph even published an article that warned the public against prematurely judging Muller, and the Daily Mail wrote that Evidence rendered his guilt extremely improbable. No wise and cautious man would dare to say at present that Muller cannot be innocent. The police too found themselves coming under the firing line for their glaring incapacity and clod-hopping blundering, calling into question their half-million-pound yearly budget. Mercifully, the city of Manchester pulled into New York on the 5th of August, allowing for new news to take the fore. The ship the detectives had travelled on was so quick across the ocean, however, that they had a full three weeks of waiting, time enough for extradition preparations to be outlined. Finally, Muller's Victoria came into sight on the horizon on the evening of the 25th of August. Inspector Tanner and Inspector Kerasy, who had followed Tanner to New York two days after he left, were waiting on the docks after alerting pilot boats to the details of the incoming passenger, warning them against the possibility of escaping passengers and reminding them they weren't to mention anything about Muller to be sure he would not be alerted to the police lying in wait for his arrival. After the ship docked, Tanner went aboard and the captain sent two armed guards to follow Muller discreetly. The passengers were called for a quarantine check and when Muller's name was called out and he stepped forward, Tanner took him to one side and arrested him for the willful murder of Thomas Briggs on the North London Line. Far from acting panicked, Muller said simply that he was never on the line and he had no idea who Briggs was. The police took him to his room where they assembled a makeshift lineup and called for Deeth, who pointed out and identified Muller immediately as the man who had come into his shop. When they searched Muller's personal items, the inspectors found both the gold watch that had belonged to Thomas Briggs and a silk top hat matching the description of the one Briggs often wore. Muller claimed that he had bought the hat on the used market over a year ago and the watch, he claimed, had been bought back at the docks in London. It was not the most convincing story, and whilst he remained calm, Muller must have realised the predicament he was now in. He was taken ashore, and the extradition process began. During the extradition hearing, which opened on the 26th of July, Muller was defended by Chauncey Schaefer, a verbose and flamboyant attorney with a good record of defending difficult criminal cases. You could always rely on Schaefer to provide good copy remarked the press. Schaefer lived up to expectations, opening the proceedings by claiming that the extradition was invalid and that any treaty between America and England were no longer applicable. England and the United States are in a war, an undeclared war, but nonetheless a state of war, a mixed and unsolemn state of war, as Grotus defined it. A state of things that, by the common consent of mankind, suspends all treaties between the two countries concerned. England cannot say she is neutral when she furnishes our rebellious subjects with vessels of war, opens her ports to them, furnishes them with arms and ammunition and sends them forth on their errands of destruction. Schaefer steered a steady course throughout the hearing, ramping up his speech and underlining all manner of Anglo-American disagreements aiming to exploit the tensions between the countries, all to great public amusement and applause. At one point, he pointed to Inspector Tanner and damned the English for murdering our citizens, destroying our commerce and humiliating our nation. England must come into court with clean hands. She must not come here and ask of us to honour her justice when she dishonours her own, breaks her treaties and cries peace and neutrality while at the same time she let slip the dogs of war. The crowded courthouse loved it. Schaefer had certainly given good copy. It was not enough, however, and once evidence had been given as to the guilt of Muller, his extradition was granted. Whilst the papers had a field day with Schaefer's speeches, they commented on Muller as vacant and indifferent, stating that he was surely either a simpleton or an innocent man to have remained so calm. The now sizeable party of Tanner, Kerasy, Deeth, Matthews and Muller sailed back to England on the 1st of September aboard the ship Etna. 
They docked in Liverpool 15 days later on the 16th of September to much excitement. The public were finally to catch a glimpse of this most foul murderer that they had heard so much about. When they arrived, there was a suitable crowd vying to catch a glimpse of Muller. Quite aside from the monster they were expecting, however, he appeared like most other young men. After the hype of the press during their time at sea, his appearance was not much more than a disappointment. The press remarked that he had seemed quiet and cheerful, and the return journey to England under the surveillance of Inspector Tanner, who he had roomed with for the whole journey, he had shown exemplary behaviour, so far that no form of restraint or handcuffs were found necessary. The party fought through the crowds awaiting their arrival, and the police took Muller to Bow Street to be formally charged, and then placed him in a cell in Holloway Prison to await trial. Whilst no one had seen Muller aboard the train, or indeed in any of the stations along the North London Line on the night of the murder, the weight of the circumstantial evidence appeared to stack heavily against Muller. His possession of both hat and watch that had belonged to Thomas Briggs were damning indeed, and his life was very much on the line. Muller, it turned out however, had something of an alibi. The trial began on the 27th of October. The German Legal Protection Society, an organisation led by a group of influential German immigrants, paid for Franz Muller's defence, and as soon as the proceedings opened, the courtroom was filled. Public interest was such that the Solicitor General, who opened the case for the prosecution, warned the jury. This is a case which has excited unusual and painful interest. It is one which, as we all know, has been canvassed in almost every newspaper. I might say in almost every house in the kingdom. And it is one on which some persons might be inclined already to form an opinion. I must entreat you, gentlemen, in approaching this most solemn inquiry, to discard from your minds anything that you may have read on the subject. The prosecution laid down the evidence against Muller with concise precision. The beaver hat left behind by the culprit had been one of only four made by the hatmaker Walker that included that specific lining, one other being that which was owned by Matthews. This meant that if this was not the hat that belonged to Muller, it was one of only two others. The top hat found in Muller's possession in New York aboard the Victoria was found to have more than superficial similarities to that of Briggs's hat. Digence, the hat maker, testified that he had stuffed the lining with tissue paper to create a better fit for Thomas Briggs. Despite the hat owned by Muller having been cut down by about an inch and a half, it did indeed show evidence of having been lined with tissue paper. The crude cutting down of the hat was not the job of a hat maker, who would have glued the seams, it was heard, but having been stitched back together, it was rather a job that a tailor might employ. Briggs Jr. was brought out to identify the watch found on Muller's person, and he claimed without hesitation that it was his father's, absolutely unmistakable, with serial numbers to back it up. The defence opened with a strong damning of the press's handling of the story in the lead-up to the trial, and went on to question Matthews, pointing out that in the past he had lied willfully before a coroner and magistrate, and the likelihood that his motives for coming forward were entirely based upon profiting from the reward. The long speech also drew attention to the fact that no blooded clothing was ever found on Muller, that he wore the same clothing the day after the murder as he was wearing on the day of, and the small issue that, as slight as he was, it was highly doubtful that Muller could have carried out the attack against the five foot nine Briggs in under three minutes, including carrying his body to the doorway and tossing him out onto the opposite tracks. You can see for yourselves that I am not describing this wrongly when I say that the prisoner is a young man possessed of no great amount of physical force. His physique is slight in the extreme. It is proved that Mr. Briggs was perfectly sober and it is said that he was sleeping. Now, gentlemen, you have to say whether you can form an opinion as to whether that struggle, which ended in the death of a powerful sober man, could have been sustained by the young man at the bar. If you believe in your own minds and consciences that this young man, with the physique that he has and which you yourselves can see, could not have murdered Mr. Briggs, then you will acquit him. Mr. Lee was called to the witness stand and reiterated his story concerning the two men he had seen in the carriage with Briggs on the night of his murder. 
and then the defence pulled their ace. Muller had been earlier suffering from an injury caused by a passing cart running into his foot. During the days of the murder, he was often seen to be wearing a slipper on the injured foot rather than a shoe, and the defence called a bus conductor who had seen a man wearing a slipper on his foot at 9.50pm on the night of the murder, the exact time the killer would have been in the carriage in North London. Though he was not able to swear it was Muller, and he could not identify him, he swore that he had seen the slippered man board the bus in Camberwell in South London. Backing this story up was a deaf woman named Marianne Eldred, who was something of a sweetheart of Muller's, and her landlady, Mrs Jones. Mrs Jones told the court how Muller had called in on Marianne at 9pm on the night of Thomas Briggs's murder, and told him that Marianne wasn't home. She then spent 10 minutes talking to him, and this bolstered the claim that he was boarding the bus in Camberwell at the time of the murder. The defence also warned the jury to forget their prejudice against German immigrants. Whilst this seemed like a strong defence, it was yet more circumstantial evidence. Worse was the misjudgment of the public mood in regards to German immigrants. Far from finding empathy, the outcome was more of a doubling down on previous opinion. It also turned out that Marianne Eldred was a prostitute and that Mrs Jones, rather than a landlady per se, was something more akin to a brothel owner. Once these facts were uncovered, they had quite a damaging effect against the defence's speech. Muller's trial lasted for three days in total. The jury was out for a mere 15 minutes before the verdict was returned and the court found Muller guilty for the murder of Thomas Briggs. I have no more doubt that you committed this murder than I have with reference to the occurrence of any other event of which I am certain, but which I did not see with my own eyes. Muller's sentence was handed down and was to be public execution by hanging. In 1864, defendants weren't allowed to speak in their defence. This was the first time the court heard him. I am satisfied with the sentence which your lordship has passed. I know very well that it is what the law of the country prescribes. What I have to say is that I have not been convicted on a true statement of the facts, but on a false statement. Muller was then led away to await execution. In the days leading to the public execution of Franz Muller, several petitions were lodged against the verdict by the German Legal Protection Society, including a visit to the Briggs' house to try and convince Briggs' family to sign. It was, however, an invitation that was swiftly denied. Several times Muller met with a priest who tried to convince him to confess to his crimes, which he did not do, and finally, on the morning of the 14th of November, Muller stood on the scaffold outside the old bailey, noose tied around his neck. The priest gave him one final chance to confess his crimes, and as the scaffold creaked and lurched into action, Muller spoke his final words in German. Ich habe es getten. I did it. The case of Thomas Briggs and the conviction of Franz Müller lingered for a while. Questions were raised and many were left unanswered. Slowly it petered out of the public's mind. Matthews collected his reward and several proposals to make trains safer for passengers were discussed in Parliament, eventually leading to the implementation of emergency brake cables in carriages. Muller's final confession appears to wrap the case up on the side of the good. However, 21 reading today, there are serious questions on the side of both Muller's guilt and innocence. Mr Lee's story remains high on the list, along with Muller's alibi. Free from the prejudice of Victorian England, we can measure its credibility with less bias. On the flip side, how would Muller come into possession of Thomas Briggs's hat and watch if he had not murdered him himself? Was Muller naive in the extreme by telling everyone of his trip to America, including even the name of the ship he was to sail on and buying a ticket in his own name? Or was he simply an innocent man, not aware that his actions might later be seen as a guilty man running from justice? His final confession stamps a finality on the affair, but for those that fall on the side of judging him innocent, remains a cryptic thing to have said, if he said it at all. So, would you reckon guilty? 
We'll go through some of the bigger questions after a quick break. As mentioned at the start of the show, Dark Histories is an official affiliate with Audible.com. As an affiliate, Audible has given us the chance to offer our listeners a 30-day free trial, and that includes an audiobook of your choice. I've actually been a member of Audible myself off and on for over a year or so now, so I'm pretty happy to advertise the service. For those that don't know it, Audible is an audiobook subscription service that gives you one credit for every month you're a member. You then go ahead and you spend your credit on any book that you like, and if you decide to quit your membership or put it on hold, you keep all of your old audiobooks. With our link, audibletrial.com forward slash darkhistories, you can sign up for a free month, and that includes a free audiobook of your choice at the same time. If you don't think it's for you at the end of the month, you can cancel your subscription before the 30 days are up and you've lost nothing, you've gained an audiobook, and you've helped to support the show. This month, I've actually been listening to a book that covers the case in this episode called Mr Briggs's Hat by Kate Colquhoun. I usually bury myself in physical books and research papers or transcripts, so to find this one on Audible was a little bit of a treat for me. They got desktop, Android and iOS apps, and they all sync up. And they also give you hassle-free returns if you find you've spent your credit on a duffer, which is something that I did when I found that I'd spent my credit on a German version of The Lost World. So they took it straight back, and I got my credit back, and everything was good. So if you think that sounds like it might tickle your fancy, head over to audibletrial.com forward slash darkhistories and sign up for your 30-day free trial. Ads are a pain in the butt, right? So do you want to know a good way to avoid listening to them? If you sign up to Dark History's Patreon, you get ad-free versions of the show with early access to episodes, access to bonus content, stickers, exclusive discounts on the t-shirt store, and all that other good stuff. You get content from me, you get videos, I give like a little running commentary and behind the scenes of how I make the show. And by being a member, you're directly supporting the show. You can sign up for as little as $1 per month, and you can help make Dark Histories the best it can be. For more information, check out our website at darkhistories.com or pop over to the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash darkhistories. Right, enough of all that. Thanks for listening and let's get back to the episode. Welcome back. So, what do you think? Guilty? Not guilty? For me... There is a myriad of questions here, but I think there's really sort of three big questions and then a bunch of kind of half big questions because none of them are really small. Matthew's relationship with Muller is is definitely something slightly interesting there. He was questioned by the police and they found it quite suspicious that it took him such a long time to come forward and that sort of answered in a few different ways, really. Firstly, they said that he was waiting for the reward to see if it would go up because it went up from 200 to 300. So they wondered if he was just waiting for it to go up and up and up. And in that case, was he just purely motivated by the reward? But even if he was motivated by the reward, there was, I think, the prosecution during the during the trial actually said, you know, even if he was motivated by the reward, isn't that fine anyway? You know, why offer a reward if you don't expect the people coming forward to be motivated by that reward? And I think they had a good point there. So whether or not he was motivated by the reward, I'm not sure that's important. But there's more theories about their relationship. And and one of them is that it, it took him such a long time to come forward because he was waiting for him to go to America and then he was going to come forward so that he could collect the reward and hopefully, as far as he was concerned, Muller could get away. And then there's other ideas or questions raised concerning Muller's relationship with his sister-in-law and it all going quite badly wrong. Apparently they, they broke up in the end because Muller was overbearing. But it's you know, not neither here nor there, really. But all of these questions were asked in at the time. You know, these, these are not new questions. It's not a very well-known case. I've never really seen it discussed. So these are all questions that were actually asked at the time 
following his execution. Because after his execution, it didn't just die down. Like I say, it petered out eventually. But there was a lot of people asking a lot of questions. One of the other sort of questions which I thought was quite quite an interesting one was Deeth being able to ID him in the lineup on the Victoria. And he pointed him out instantly and said, that's the man that came into my shop. But when he gave his statement to the police earlier, he said that he couldn't give a good description of Muller because uh, when, when he'd served him, which he, actually his brother had served him and he came along and sort of helped out. Um, but he said that he was sort of trying to avoid eye contact. He was basically acting shifty as hell and uh, avoiding sort of anyone getting a good look at his face. So if Deeth can give a description of him when he gave his statement, how was he able to walk onto the Victoria and say, there's the man right there, boom. Was he shown Muller's calling card by the police? Makes me wonder. Because the police had an awful lot to lose. And this came up a lot after the execution. And it was one of the sort of big questions of the time was the police really couldn't be seen to have ballsed it all up, basically. And, you know, there was documents that they kept out of the public, um, which were his, uh, the documents that he'd written in whilst he was in jail waiting to be executed, uh, which I think were essentially just his, his statement saying that he hadn't done it, uh, as far as the descriptions of them go. But no one's been able to get hold of them because the police actually kept them out of the public at the time. So, you know, you, what, what was that all about? And then you have the fact that he wasn't allowed, you know, in 1864, so the defendant wasn't allowed to defend themselves. They weren't allowed to say anything in defence of themselves. So, you know, no one actually got to hear his side of the story, really, in court. It was just his... Although he could speak sort of by proxy through his attorney, that was all had to be done sort of in a very kind of strict way it, and, and just pointing out evidence. But no one was actually able to sort of just hear his side of the you know, his statement, really. He he wasn't allowed to give any statements because if you were arrested for murder, basically forfeited your rights. But the three sort of big ones for me, okay, so because, I mean, I'm really on the fence with this. I'm on the fence with everything in dark histories. I mean, you should know by now I never solve anything. I never come to, or, or you know, I never even solve anything in my mind. But, uh, you know, there's sort of three big questions for me. Uh, uh, Mr. Lee's story about the two men in the carriage. That is fishy as hell. And his original statement was totally overlooked by the police. They said it was overlooked, but was it overlooked? Or was it the fact that Kerosy and Tanner were on their way to America at the time that he'd given his statement and therefore the police sort of felt like, oh, perhaps we should sort of forget this one and sort of accidentally throw it in the bin. You know, it seems very suspicious. It seems like it's not a statement that corroborated their line of inquiry at the time. So rather than pursue it, they just sort of put it to one side. And it just so happened the defence got hold of the statement as well and brought it up in court because they... The prosecution ignored it in in court. So Mr. Lee was just a middle-class guy who knew Briggs and he happened to walk past and see Briggs say goodnight to him and see two other guys. That seems to fit quite well given that, you know, it would have taken quite a bit to have thrown him out of the door of the train and to have killed him so quickly. Even if he was sleeping... You can much easier see if it was two people. If say he was asleep in the corner, if one person sort of held his arms whilst the other one beat him, they robbed him, and then the pair picked him up and threw him out the door. You can much easily see that rather than just the one guy, right? Or for me, I could. So that's definitely a fishy part of it. And then you've got his alibi. 
how many people are you going to see walking around with one slipper on? You know, a slipper on one of their feet. It's fairly well documented that he'd hurt his foot and, you know, several witnesses had seen him walking around with this slipper on his foot rather than a shoe. And then it just so happens that a man gets on a bus in Camberwell at the time of the murder with the slipper on. And then it just so happens that Muller actually knows someone who lives near enough to Camberwell that he would have been there or he had a reason to have been there as well. So his alibi is pretty tight. I mean, I wouldn't say it's super tight, but it's enough surely, isn't it? One person says they think they saw him. Another person says they definitely saw him a little earlier. That's a pretty tight alibi. It at least deserves more consideration than it did in the day, I guess. Because in the, in the day, they, they it basically got shot down through prejudice, I guess. And then the last sort of really big one for me is his final confession. Now, I read a little bit about this, and and I'm not so sure that he actually said it. I I don't think he did. There was a big kerfuffle about this confession because it was very convenient, shall we say. I don't want to get all conspiracy, you know, like tinfoil hat or anything, but it was very convenient that his last words that no one really heard were an outright confession, despite the fact that he'd gone the last two or three days absolutely denying it to everyone. Why would he suddenly, at the very last minute, change his mind and say, oh yeah, no, it was me, I did it, yeah. It's convenient, right? When you've got a police force that doesn't want to be seen as bungling, you've got arguments against capital punishment raging, been, if there was any doubt that they'd hung the wrong man, that was going to go quite severely against those arguments. Because at the time, capital punishment in England was... yeah, You know, obviously, a lot of people went to go and see him get hung. So there was a lot of people that were still into it. But a lot of people were... The attitudes were, was quite seriously changing. And they were saying that basically it was barbaric and, and it's it's not cool especially to do it in public at least that that was kind of the first step was they, they it wasn't cool to do it in public and then obviously they moved it out of the public and then later you know we abolished it outright but at the time that was quite a sort of heated argument they couldn't be seen to have hung the wrong person and the police couldn't be seen to be bungling because they were you know the press were lampooning them constantly it just seems very convenient that he said it. But then, the, the, you know, this wasn't a small debate, really, and there, there, there does seem to be sort of proof that he said it in as much as we're going to get in that there's a first-hand account of him on, on the scaffold saying this is what he said. But that's it. That's That's as far as the proof goes. So it's a bit tinfoil hat, but... At the same time, the evidence, you know, against him is pretty weighty as well. You know, how did he have all those items? If he had just the watch or just the hat, I might be willing to sort of say, okay, I think he's innocent, but he had the watch and the hat and he'd pawned the chain. It all seems very like, I mean, you'd be pretty bad luck to have them all. And he's he was quite inconsistent. He told people, different stories he told different people he had he he'd bought them in different places and at different times now his defense essentially said that it was because he was a vain man and he liked to kind of talk himself up a little bit he he previously told someone that he was going to america on behalf of his boss that he worked for currently to be paid like quite an ex- extravagant wage which wasn't true and you know he he was quite a sort of he was quite into his bling i guess so the defense tried to chalk his kind of inconsistencies of stories to that basically saying 
you know, he wasn't really going to say to someone, oh, I bought him off this shifty looking guy down the docks real cheap. Because that's not, it's, it's not very fancy, is it? So that's how they kind of come up with that. And I suppose there is every chance that he could have been at the docks because he was spending a lot of time there. He'd been there two or three days to inquire about passage to America and then go back to buy his ticket and all the rest of it. So there's every chance that he could have met someone down there who said, here, mate, do you want to buy, the, you know, I'll sell you this chain, this hat and this watch for a couple of quid. And he could have said, yeah, okay, and sort of bought them knowing that they were obviously something wrong. Therefore, he would have taken the chain to the pawn shop to sort of clean it, if you like. Like, he would have been aware that if he'd have bought something like that at the docks, that there was probably something wrong with it. So, therefore, he would have he would have gone to the pawn shop to clean it, you know. He would have gone, traded it, got himself a clean one. So, it's not entirely out of the realms of possibility, but it is kind of unlikely. But, again, we look on the other side. Everyone gave him sort of shining character references, really. Everyone spoke of him as being a really nice guy. In fact, the only bad thing that comes up about him when anyone's talking about his character was Matthews, who says that he's, he'd split up with his sister-in-law because he was overbearing. That's literally the worst thing anyone says about him. Everyone says that he was a really nice guy, that he was really soft, and that he was generally an amiable guy. And then all, you know, even the press were sort of saying, you know, this guy is, there's nothing wrong with him, he's a nice guy. And in fact, on the boat journey back to England, he bunked with Tanner, and Tanner was like lending him books, and said that he was, you know, a, a, an impeccable prisoner who'd done, you know, who acted absolutely perfect and had sort of not become friends with him at all, but had basically gotten all right with him all the way back. And then, of course, you've got another question, which I suppose it sort of does fit into a biggie. Sort of a big question is, if he was, if he'd killed someone and was fleeing to America, which is how it was kind of framed at the time, at first, if that's what he was doing, why had he told everyone weeks in advance that he was going to America aboard the Victoria? And when he bought his ticket, he bought his ticket in his own name. So that's either incredibly naive or he was innocent. That's really all you can point at, surely. You can't sort of say... You know, if you're guilty and you know you're guilty and you're fleeing justice, you're not you're not going to go down the docks and say, you know, this is my name, this is my address. What other information do you want? It's going to be cleverer than that, surely. So, yeah, so I, I don't know. There was an interesting quote from a paper, the, the Brisbane Courier, which gave a overview of the case, I guess, when it, once it was all done and dusted. And uh, they reported on him in the, in the courtroom. And they said, that The unhappy man was obviously keenly sensible of the perils. Per- this is what happens. You, this is like what you don't see because I edit it all, but I can't read at all. The unhappy man was obviously keenly sensible of the perilousness of... Perilousness? That's the one. Of his position the almost apathetic indifference with which he listened formally to the chain of evidence by which his connection with the murder was sought to be established was now changed for a nervous restlessness. He was engaged throughout the day in writing notes to his solicitor and constantly made suggestions to his counsel. Still, there was nothing in his manner or air to coincide with the established notions of what ought to be the appearance of a criminal and the look of painful weariness which was settled upon his countenance might be accounted for easily enough by the anxiety of his protracted suspense, without any necessity of supposing that it was caused by a conviction of guilt. In fact, the look of Franz Muller afforded no test whatever by which any opinion could be formed as to his innocence or the contrary. And that's not unusual. You know, that's a... I I read hundreds of quotes like that 
that basically said the dude was really chill. He spent the whole time being quite, you know, he never once kind of flipped out. Only twice did he give way to any emotion. And that was when he first came back to England and the German legal defence society, whatever they were called, um, first met him and told him that basically they would pay for his defence and they were kind of on his side. And he sort of broke down in tears in, as a sort of thankfulness that was sort of shown. And a second time was as he left the courtroom and just been told that he's going to be publicly executed, he stood up, he gave his peace, and he turned around, walked out of the court and broke down in tears again. Now that's the only times he showed any sort of emotion. Now, neither of those times were anger or panic or anything. They were both despair more than anything. I just don't think he acted like a guilty man, not once. But at the same time, I'm obviously, you know, probably listening to this, you would think that I'm nailing on as being innocent. And I suppose I'm probably about 60% think he was innocent. But there is a big question of where did he get those items then? Tricky. Interesting case, though. And incidentally something that I thought was quite interesting that didn't really fit into the episode was that although the British press were terrible throughout the whole thing, the German press were equally as bad. The whole case basically spawned a kind of media propaganda war between England and Germany. It's sort of Germany being on the other end of the spectrum. So all the time England was saying, oh, you know, this Franz Muller guy, well dodgy, definitely a murderer. The German press were basically saying like, oh, the barbaric British justice system is being mean to this entirely innocent young tailor. So it sort of basically spawned this kind of, yeah, this is like basically a media propaganda war. But yeah, that's sad. It didn't really, I couldn't really find a place to sort of fit that in. But that was a really interesting line of research that I kind of stumbled down for a little while. So what did you think? You'd have to let me know because, again... As always, I never kind of come out with these things with any kind of solid solutions on my end. I mean, not that I'm sort of thinking I'm going to solve any of these cases, but, you know, I always end up just being totally like, I don't know. And again, I have to say, I'm pretty much 100%. I don't know. I really don't know. I, I think he was probably innocent, actually. But I don't know. So, yeah... Please let me know what what you think. And, uh, you know, I'd love to hear your theories and thoughts on it. And to talk about that, actually, we will have the perfect opportunity to do that. On the 31st of August, we'll be doing the second Dark Histories live stream. And you can come on. You can either come on the stream and chat, sort of voice, voice and video if you prefer. Or you can come into the YouTube channel and just use the text chat and sort of chat about this episode and the previous episode. And that should be a bit of fun. So that's going to be on the 31st. You can find details of that on all our social media. I'll be tweeting about it and, you know, social media in it as it gets closer. To get involved, you sort of do need to be on our Discord server. Um, you can find details of that at darkhistories.com. All the social media is on there as well. But we're basically at Dark Histories on Twitter, Dark Histories Podcast on Facebook, and Dark underscore Histories on Instagram. Instagram's quite a cool one because I actually post pictures that I find whilst I'm researching. So, you know, it's always pictures related. I don't post any gore, things like that, because I know some podcasts do, and I know that some people don't really like seeing that, so I don't I don't really do that. I try, tend to sort of steer, steer away from that, and it's mostly just portraits of the people involved, things like that. So, yeah, jump on there if you fancy that. Mainly our Discord is a good one, though, because you can actually come and chat with me and the community about all sorts of stuff. We've mostly been talking about coal this week, piles of coal, and 
<laughs> which is to do with Zygmunt Adamski still. So yeah, jump on the Discord and get prepared for the live stream if you want to come on, because that'll be a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun last time, had some technical issues. This time they should be ironed out. If you'd like to support, that'd be sweet. Patreon.com forward slash Dark Histories. Again, you can find information on darkhistories.com about that. You know the drill. You get a bunch of nice things, ad-free versions of the show, all that kind of stuff, for the price of buying me a coffee every month. And it goes a really long way in supporting the show and keeping it afloat. So yeah, if you fancy doing that, that'd be sweet. If you don't, don't worry about it. Leave us a review, tell your friends, post about it on social media. That's just as good. Anyway, I hate all this self-promotion lark. This has been a bit of a true crime month, hasn't it? So next episode, not sure what we're going to do yet, but it'd probably be something not true crime. But I'm looking forward to the live stream because I do think these episodes like this episode and the previous episode, has definitely lent itself to discussion. So the live stream should be interesting. So I'm looking forward to that. Anyway, it's been wonderful as always. And, you know, I'll be looking forward to hopefully meeting some of you guys on the live stream. So until then, or the next episode, I hope you have a fantastic couple of weeks. Thanks very much for listening. It's been wonderful as always. Sleep tight.